So, this morning, we're looking at Genesis 32, um, verses 22 through 32. You can follow along on the screen. Mind the way. Am I good? We're good. Um, Genesis 32, 22 through 32. Uh, if you want to follow along on the screen beside me, that's great. If you've got it with you, you can do that too. Um, before we read, let's pray together. God, thanks for, for just giving us the ability to do this. Um, rain or shine, indoors, outdoors, live, virtual, in person, over the airwaves. Uh, you allow us to do this, and we are so grateful. So thank you. And we take a moment now to to just quiet ourselves and to prepare our hearts to, to hear a word from you. And God, we ask that in these next few moments, we ask that, that you would speak and that we would hear your voice and that you would do something in us today that would change us, that would make us different, make us new. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week we looked at the story of Jacob on the run from brother Esau. I'll sort of recap this in a little bit more detail in a little bit, but on the run in the wilderness uh, and he falls asleep and he has a dream and he sees this ladder connecting heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending on it uh, and has this sudden realization that, oh my goodness, God was in this place and I was not aware of it. Right? So he has this, what we call a theophany, an, ex, an experience, an intense experience of the divine presence. And it's like, oh my goodness. Right? Well, some things have taken place since then, uh, about 20 years or so between then and now. Here's the story. That night, Jacob got up took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him right there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. We will go that far. What a story. 
right? What a story. I think we could file this story under the biblical stories you absolutely have to know section of the Bible, if we could create such a section of the Bible, because this is one of those, this is one of those primal stories. This is one of those, this is one of those foundational stories, kind of like, like the creation story or the call of, the call of Abram and Sarai, uh, I will bless you and all nations on earth will be blessed through you. And this is kind of one of those stories. Remember, these are, these are people who are just beginning to understand what it's like to connect with the divine and are, are being shaped by these stories and by these experiences. And so this is a story that if we let it, will tell us a whole bunch of really good things about God, I think. I think it will tell us some things about who we are and maybe who we ought to be if we let this story do that. So before we get into this little episode in the life of Jacob, again, I want to sort of fill out the story of Jacob. So remember, Jacob's name is the heel grasper, the, the deceiver, the one who supplants, the one who overreaches. That's, that's the one that I like the most. I don't know why. The one who overreaches. So mommies and daddies, we're not out here telling our kids, hey, Grow up to be like Jacob. Like, he's not a model citizen. He's not someone we want to be like. Okay? That's not what we're talking about here. So at this point in his life, Jacob's life is just straight up a hot mess. It's bad. For 20 years, he's been living underneath this sort of death sentence from his brother Esau. He's still feeling immense guilt for stealing his brother's inheritance for... Uh, for deceiving his own father, for totally destroying and tearing apart his family. 20 years. So 20 years before what we just read, uh, while on the run from brother Esau, just after he saw that ladder connecting heaven and earth, he made his way across the border to Uncle Laban's house. And for 20 years, he works really hard for Uncle Laban marries his two daughters, Leah and Rachel, has a, a bunch of children, and during that time he makes himself wealthy. But here's the thing. His wealth comes, guess how he gets his wealth? Through deceit and fraud. Essentially what he does is he steals sheep from Uncle Laban right underneath his nose. And when he's done accumulating all this wealth so that it becomes almost embarrassing, he decides, yeah, it's time to split. So, under cover of darkness, he gathers his family, gathers all his stuff, all his wealth, and they leave in the middle of the night. Figures he would do it in the middle of the night, right? That's the kind of guy he is. And so now they're out in the wilderness again. They're looking across the stream into the darkness, into the land of Canaan, their homeland. Esau's over there somewhere, and they've been told that Esau's coming to get him, and he's bringing an army. He's been holding this grudge for 20 years, and he's not messing around anymore. He's coming, and he's bringing an army. So behind Jacob is his life, everything he has, his family, his wives, his kids, all his stuff. And what does he do? Well, true to form, he starts to manipulate the situation once again, right? And I got to hand it to him. This is probably a pretty good idea. 
So he splits the caravan into two, sends one in one direction and the other in the other direction. So if Esau attacks, at least he doesn't lose all of his stuff. He doesn't lose everything. Then he sends this elaborate gift ahead to sort of butter his brother up and maybe, maybe ease Esau's anger a little bit. So after he sends everyone and everything else across the stream, he sits down alone, right? Just as he did, again, 20 years before, when he dreamed up that ladder connecting heaven and earth, he sits down alone in the dark. He's still a fugitive. He's still feeling guilty. He's still terrified. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it seems, in the dark, an intruder comes and assaults him. And they wrestle. It's not Esau, his brother, but it's a stranger. And this stranger refuses to be named. They wrestle all night long. The intruder then wounds Jacob in the hip, the thigh area, so that not enough to kill him, but enough, but enough to make him limp for the rest of his life. Like, for the rest of his life, he's going to remember this night, this experience. He's got a scar, a wound he can now talk about. The stranger never gives Jacob his name. But before he disappears, before he disappears into the night, he blesses Jacob and gives him a new name. Israel. The one who struggles or wrestles or contends with God. Israel, the one who wrestles with God. Well, that was God? Wait a minute. Maybe? We're not really sure what to do with that. But I'm thinking that maybe Jacob thought before this night that God was only present in those times when you have those intense experiences of the divine. You know the ones where, where you can see the ladder with the angels going up and down. That God was maybe only near at certain times. That God only every once in a while sort of reaches out of heaven and helps or touches us to aid us. But after this encounter with this unnamed wrestler... I think Jacob might be beginning to understand that God's presence permeates all of life. That God was serious when God promised he would never leave him. There's that idea again. It's all over this book. All over it. Every decision we make. Every action we take. Every step we take. Every word we speak, every thought we think, all of it, all of it is done with the divine right there, with God by our side. And I think that on this night, Jacob was probably learning a few other things about this divine being. First, you can't pin the divine down. You just can't pin God down. We try all the time, but you can't pin God. He's wrestling. What's the point of wrestling? The point of wrestling is literally to pin your opponent to the ground. He wrestles all night and cannot pin him down. 
And then at the end of the match, he tries to, he tries to get the, the stranger's name. And this is really important. Right? Because back in that day, and still in some cases in our world today, to name something was to exercise control over it, was to exert power over it, was to manipulate it. And here's the deal. Most religions, religions in the world have been, have been created to name, define, limit, or influence the gods. Right? To give human beings some way through rites and rituals and power structures to influence the gods, to get what we want. And look, we still do this today. We, even we Jesus people, we do this all the time. We, have, we try to pin God down. We try to limit, define God in certain parameters because we want to be certain. We want to be so certain. We want to know. And so we argue about things. We do this all the time. We argue about who God is and how God expects us to live. And sometimes those arguments, they sort of, they sort of get out of control and they cause splits. And most of the time, if we're really paying attention to what's underneath the surface of all of these arguments, is an intense anxiety about, about who's going to keep the power. That's really what they're about. It's about that more than anything else. So we try to pin God down. We try to name God. We try to define God. But here in this story, here in this story, we have something that ought to humble us. Ought to make us go easy. Here we have in this story a God who refuses to be named. A God who refuses to be pinned down. A God who refuses to be controlled. Here we have a God who's living and free, unpredictable. Here we have a God that's surprising. Friends, God is just bigger and more amazing than, than we could ever comprehend. His will for us, his future for us, I think is greater than we will ever understand. Remember, Jacob, you, and me, we're blessed to be a blessing. Like This whole thing is connected with that. When God called Abram and Sarah and said, you're going to be blessed and all nations will be blessed through you. Then he came to Jacob and said, those promises I made, now I make them to you. And now extend that out to us. We're blessed so the whole world will be blessed. We have been showed grace so that we will embody grace. We have been loved so that we will love the world. Right? This is a bigger calling. This is, there's no bigger calling than this at all. And it's going to take a God who is bigger, greater than our understanding, to help us live that out. Right? And God cannot be pinned down. Here's the second thing I think Jacob learns about God. That even though God cannot be pinned down, he's entirely unwilling to be alone and will relentlessly pursue us. God is unwilling to be alone and will relentlessly pursue us. One of my favorite lines or statements in the Bible comes in one of Job's prayers. He prays to God this, you stalk me like a lion. You stalk me like a lion. God is bent on it. God is bent on being in relationship with us. 
in spite of all of our flaws and weaknesses, he's bent on it. There's that theme again. So, there's a Roman Catholic missionary named Vincent J. Donovan who's written a book called Christianity Rediscovered. It's been one of the most influential reads in my life. Um, if you come across this thing, snatch it up and read it. Christianity Rediscovered by Vincent J. Donovan. In the book, he talks about his experience as a missionary in Africa to the to the tribe called the Maasai tribe. And in the book, he describes this conversation he has with an older member of the Maasai tribe, sort of like a, a, a tribal leader. And for this tribal leader, the word that Vincent was using in Kiswahili to, to get across the idea of faith just wasn't good enough. The word he was using, I can't pronounce it, uh, it just means to assent to, right? So. We're used to this one. There's ideas about God, and we mentally assent to those things. That's kind of the idea here. And the tribesmen said, that's not good enough. And he said this, to believe like that is like a hunter shooting an animal with his gun at a great distance. Only his eyes and fingers took part. Are you with him there? Because I am. Ideas about God? Okay. I can mentally assent to that. That doesn't take much energy. Are you with me? And then he kept, said this. For a man to really believe is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap. And the single blow to the neck with the front paw, the blow that actually kills. As the animal goes down, the lion takes it in his arms, pulls it to himself, and makes it a part of himself. That's the way a lion kills. That's the way a man believes. That's faith. And then, it was like he had this sudden realization like a light flickered in his eyes and he, un he understood something even more deeper. He said to Vincent, we didn't search you out, Padre. We didn't even want you to come to us. You searched us out. You followed us away from your house and into the bush. You told us about God and how we must search for him, but we have not done that. We have not searched for God. He has searched for us. He sent you to find us. All this time, we think we are the lion. In the end, the lion is God. <sighs> Nails it. In the end, the lion is God. God is the one who searches us out. God is the one who is always after us with the ferocious patience of a hunting lion. Now think about your life. Think about all of our lives. Think about some of the things that you've done and we've done, some of the thoughts we've had, some of the things that we've said, right? some of the things that we've ignored and left undone. Think about all of the ways in which we've turned the other way and, and we've run away. 
from God, and yet here we are. We're tuned in. Here we are. We're still here in the presence of God because God keeps coming after us, keeps pulling us back, keeps pulling us in. God is entirely unwilling to be alone and will pursue us like a lion hunting its prey. But think about this. God comes to wrestle. God comes to contend with the human being, but God doesn't totally overwhelm him. God doesn't destroy him like a lion would. God doesn't God doesn't totally annihilate Jacob because of all of his flaws. And Jacob's got a lot of flaws. And this might be the most amazing part about this story. That God doesn't overwhelm him. That God doesn't defeat him. Instead, God does the unthinkable. God becomes vulnerable. God limits God's self in order to teach this deceitful, constantly running away human being about God's availability and accessibility. God makes himself vulnerable, limits himself to teach, to teach this guy about God's intimate involvement in human life. His willingness to risk pain and suffering and defeat in order to show love and grace and blessing. Of course, generations later, God would do the same thing in the most amazing way. When the the person we know as Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus of Nazareth, made himself vulnerable was wounded and crucified and died just to show us what love looks like to show us what God is really like one more thought God's willingness to be in relationship with us ultimately transforms us it changes us Jacob's name has changed to Israel. Used to be Jacob, heel grasper, deceiver. It's almost as if God is communicating to Jacob. You grasp someone else's heel, you're grasping at mine. You deceive someone else, you're deceiving me. You manipulate someone else, in reality, you're also manipulating me. Jacob, heel grasper. Your new name is Israel, the one who struggles with God. A struggle with human beings, a struggle with issues, a struggle with tough choices. It's a struggle with me. I think Jacob finally realizes at this point in his life that, that all of the struggling he's done, it hasn't only been with other people. All the struggling he's done, it hasn't only been with tough issues. All the struggling he's done, it hasn't only been with with ethical choices or moral decisions, all his wrestling and struggling hasn't even been with only himself. He's been wrestling with God, struggling with God, contending with God the whole time. So he's been given a new name, a new identity, one that reflects reality, Israel, the one who struggles with God. So we may never be able to pin God down, though we try. 
But maybe that's not the point. Maybe the point is not the pinning down of God, the, the defining of God, the creating certainty around God. Maybe that isn't the point. Maybe the point is that we're trying to do it. Maybe the point is wrestling with God, trying to pin God down while having the humility to understand that we're just not going to get it done. Maybe wrestling with God is the point. Maybe it's, maybe it's in the pushing against and the pulling at God and having God push against us and pull at us. That Maybe it's in that thing. That, that's how the transformation takes place. Maybe that's how God makes us into the kind of people he wants us to be because maybe that's what it takes to finally bring us to the place where we're humble enough. Maybe that's how God transforms us into the kind of people who actually begin to think outside of ourselves and start thinking about how to actually be a blessing in the world. The kind of people whose actions and words are defined by grace and love and blessing. So here's the deal. Every moment, our whole lives, it's just one big struggle. <laughs> It's one big wrestling match with the divine. That's what it is. You felt it. I felt it. We feel it. So every moment in our lives is, an, is another opportunity to take a step toward becoming the kind of person that God ultimately wants you to be. What will you do? Will you do it? Are you willing to struggle, to risk it, to wrestle? What challenges are you facing now that, that could be maybe overcome if you decided you're going to wrestle with God instead of running away. Will you be a God wrestler? You, you already are, even if you weren't aware of it before now. So wrestle on. It'll probably change you into the person that God wants you to be. It'll transform you. Maybe you'll come out having a new name. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for being with us, for showing up even when things don't go right. Thank you for the struggle, because we all feel this struggle. And we ask, oh God, that, that this struggle would humble us, all of us. And that you would continue to be near us, continue to touch us in the ways that we need it, so that we might actually become.